Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Always lovely to know that you're out there so that we're traveling together on this journey through history. Before we get started on today's ep, I need to say a big thank you to all the people who show their support for the podcast series by subscribing to my Patreon site. It's the financial support from the Patreon presence that makes possible everything else that Paul and I do here. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, follow the instructions, part with a bit of cash, either monthly or for the year, uh, and you get access to the community, the family that is us, uh, weekly vodcasts, questions and answers, competitions and all sorts. Uh, So come and join the family, and if you're already a member of the family, a thousand thanks yet again. Okay, it's time to strap into the time machine uh, as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Much of Europe united in a vast empire, held together by the wisdom and strength of one man, Charlemagne. His death, though, plunges the continent into chaos, civil war and bloodshed, deadly brotherly battles, greed, grasping ambition and sorrow. Peace is brokered and three kingdoms are created. Watching over the chaos and all subsequent attempts to unite the continent is the ghost of Charlemagne. Always, always dressed in a plain blue Frankish cloak. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we travelled with you to Rome in 800 AD, a time when almost the whole of Europe was pulled together by an extraordinary leader. Which moment in history are we heading to this week? Afternoon Paul. Yes, last week we saw Charlemagne crowned Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. We watched him solidify a vast European empire. But when he dies 14 years later, the trouble begins. Bitter rival factions emerge and civil wars erupt across the continent, simmering for decades. This episode, we're heading to the city of Verdun in 843 AD to see the signing of a treaty between the warring factions as they try to patch things up and put the violence behind them. We've been looking at Charlemagne and how much he mattered and how he brought together the Holy Roman Empire he was crowned emperor by Pope Leo 
on Christmas Day 800 AD and we're back with him. We're in his territory, we're in his demean, but we're contemplating what happened after he died because it's a recurrent theme of kingdoms and empires, really, that everyone recognises if you think about it, that they're always hostage to fortune regarding the quality of the air or, or indeed the lack of quality. You know, so just because a kingdom has been established and or ruled by a useful, focused, powerful individual who who generates the kind of gravitational pull that holds the entity together from the centre, as long as you've got that, then you've got a, a viable entity, a going concern. But when the quality dips after that emperor or king, then you've got a problem. And that was what happened uh, in the aftermath of Charlemagne. I mean, to say that he was big shoes to follow is putting it mildly. He was one of the most effective emperors. I mean, they called him Caesar. He, he was a, he was regarded as a you know as as a one of a kind really, and he was. So uh, he'd he'd had he'd had plans. You know, he wasn't stupid, and he, in the latter part of his life, he was looking to what would happen after he was gone, and he he was parceling up his territory uh, to hand it off. Uh, to, to his sons but as it happened they died they they predeceased him uh, with with but one exception so in, in 813 AD he summoned Louis the Pious as they called him his youngest boy uh, who by that point was king of Aquitaine which is a bit of what we would call France um, and by then he was the only surviving legitimate son and heir there were illegitimate sons, but they didn't they didn't count in the scheme of things. Were they powerful though, the illegitimate ones? Not successfully. They weren't able to make anything of that. So anyway, in, in eight thirteen, towards the end of the year, Charlemagne summoned Louis. He summoned him to his, his court and crowned him co emperor. So he put him on an equal an equal footing. It's not unlike that story that, you know, we've already covered with the Caesars. You'd have the main figure and then they would they would have a, a nominated deputy to succeed them. There's a lot of the same atmosphere going on, but in any event, Charlemagne made his, or crowned his, his son co-emperor and, you know, packed him back off to Aquitaine. And for the latter part of that year, 813, he went hunting and then he returned to that favourite place of his, which was Aachen, on the 1st of November. Uh, and he, he, he took ill early the following year, 814, uh, it's thought to have been pleurisy, which is what is pleurisy? It's your lungs. It's a it's an inflammation, an infection in the in the lining of the lungs, and he was he was at a low ebb, uh, probably because you know his his sons were gone, and you know the future of the of the empire was uncertain, as far as he could see it, and he took to his bed, as they say, on the twenty first of January, and he died a week later. Einhardt, who was this Germanic, a little chap apparently, who was the court biographer, and he described, and I quote, he died January 28th, the seventh day from the time that he took to his bed at nine o'clock in the morning after partaking of the Holy Communion in the 72nd year of his age and the 47th of his reign. So there you go, he was 72 years old and he had reigned for 47 of them. So it was a big deal, you know, we've just lost Queen Elizabeth II 
uh, same sort of thing applied for, for a lot of the people in the in the Holy Roman Empire who were aware of him at all. He he would have been there for the larger part of their lives. He was just a constant figure, and to have him suddenly gone was uh, was shocking. Especially, it's very difficult. You can't put yourself in the mindset of people twelve, thirteen hundred years ago, but a different mindset, much more preoccupied than us with matters spiritual. What it would all mean, you know, the, the the endless fight between good and evil, light and dark. And for a lot of them, Charlemagne would have been a, a father figure, a great protector. So his death hit people hard, or or it did according to chroniclers like Einhardt. Uh, but there were others, there were others who said that, um, you know, it was a devastating blow. Uh, there was another, a monk, who wrote at the time, From the lands where the sun rises to western shores, people are crying and wailing. The Franks, the Romans, all Christians are stung with mourning and great worry. The young and old, glorious nobles, all lament the loss of their Caesar. The world laments the death of Charles. O Christ, you who govern the heavenly host, grant a peaceful place to Charles in your kingdom. Alas, for miserable me. So there's the, there's the tone of it. It's also... You know, living in Europe today, where all the countries are so set in stone now, and then to think of a completely different landmass. I mean, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. We think of, you know, if you've got, I suppose, um, probably most people would struggle to point at all 100 and <laughs> whatever it is, 90 countries on the planet, but probably most people could make a good stab at Europe. If you live in if you live in Britain, you probably, you know, you could point out Spain and France and Germany and Italy and... And so on, uh, but it was it was all it was all different once, and, it, and it's been different over and over again. And and what what Charlemagne had done was to bring together that entity, which af- in the aftermath of his death, uh, again and again, one individual or one group tried to re-establish it, tried to bring it back that greater Europe, so that the European Union now is only the latest manifestation of that that desire to pull the whole place together as one. And obviously there are those who are very passionately committed to the idea of one Europe, one world, and there are those that, that don't want it, that, that prefer the idea of individual nation-states, and that's, a, that's a, a tension that's not new. Uh, so Charlemagne dies, 814, and Louis succeeds him. He's now emperor. Charlemagne left a great deal of his money to the church because he was a... Or he, he either was or, or wanted to be remembered as having been a pious individual who was committed to the faith. Um, but the fact is, the fact is, with him gone, it was like an engine stopped turning somewhere, and the energy started to, you know, something started to slow down. You know, it was, there was a there was a lack of of momentum without him. In the short term, there were things that had to be done. He was buried in the cathedral at Aachen. He was buried in a crypt. But in 1215, this is really a footnote, but it's it's interesting in its own way. In, in 1215, his remains were lifted, possibly not for the first time. Uh, it, it seems like he was possibly reboxed and reburied more than once. But in 1215, his remains were exhumed uh, del- quite deliberately, and they were placed inside a fantastic shrine called the Karl's Shrine, Charles's Shrine, a great big gold sarcophagus, it's a fantastic thing it's still there and it was commissioned specially by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II uh, and, and there he there he lies and why why did they do that just to 
Well, usually these things happen because people are harking back. They want to be seen in association with. You raise the ghost of Charlemagne, and and it's as though he's, he's you're standing beside him, or you have his backing. You want to remind people of greatness, and thereby you know sort of associate yourself with it. But you know, so that but that's as I say, that's a footnote. That's getting into the thirteenth century. In the immediate aftermath of Charlemagne's death in the ninth century. There you had that problem. His successors were just not the same. They were just not up to the job. His empire made sense while he was there. But without him, it was as though it began to look again like the confection it was. While he was there, while it was Charlemagne, they were all Franks together. East and West, North and South, you know, they were united by him. But once he was gone, it was it was like at the end of a, a production on a stage, you know, when the house lights go up, and suddenly the set that has captivated you for the for the production, it all looks a bit, all looks a bit flimsy and, and clapperboard. You know, it it doesn't it doesn't hang together right anymore because the magic has just has just gone, uh, and so that it was like, are we really one? Are we really one one empire? Difficult doesn't doesn't feel the same anymore. Louis had three sons, and his reign was bedeviled by the fact that they just didn't get on. It was caused in no small part by the fact that, that he had Louis had sons by two women, so there were two wives. So there were two sons by one and a, and a third by another, and they were all they were all legitimate. Uh, but when it came to the push, as his reign was going on, he was making plans in his own time to divide up the empire between between those those three individuals and obviously he had plans as well to give a, a big swatch of territory to his son Charles uh, a younger son who was his son by the second wife the two sons of the first wife didn't like that now I mean that's a familiar story that you know of blended families or whatever you call them you know there's often there's often trouble when that sort of thing starts to happen and it, it was bad enough while Louis was still alive, but when he died, war broke out. So he died in, in 840, 840, and proper war broke out between the three brothers. Because they've got their own territories and that. Yeah, they're wanting, well, with him gone, with dad out of the picture, they're all fighting over the inheritance. Uh, what happened quite quickly, uh, so there's Charles, then there's a son, Louis, Louis the German, as they called him, and he sided with Charles, you know, f for political gain. Uh, so the two of them, so Charles and Louis the German, come together against the elder brother, the firstborn, who's Lothar. So Lothar would, would technically have been entitled to expect to be emperor. They, they, they would all get territory, but the imperial title can only go to one of them. So Lothar was, was expecting, it was expected that he would be emperor but the fact was he was defeated in battle by the other two and sued for peace so peace was brokered between the three brothers and what came out of it was called the Treaty of Verdun there's a place that you know Verdun obviously for most people well of our generation I suppose Paul um, you think of Verdun in relation to the First World War you know it was one of the great catastrophic charnel houses of the First World War but in, in 843, that's where Lothar was, 
and the the treaty was struck, and so it took the name of the it took the name of the, that principal town, and it split once and for all that which had been the empire of Charlemagne, and successfully held together by him. It finally shattered, splintered rather, into three, and all three got a bit. <laughs> Lothar, as, as, the, as the emperor, the other two accept that he, he receives the imperial title and he gets a territory that was called Franca Media, Middle Francia, which, well, it's hard to picture unless you're looking at a map, but it was the Netherlands, Belgium, a western slice of Germany, a, an eastern slice of what we would call France. Remember, these places aren't called, they're not, there is no Germany, there is no France at this point. But that's where the territory is. So it's coming through Netherlands in the north, Belgium, a western tranche of Germany, and an easterly bit of France, Switzerland, and then all the way down to Italy and to Rome. It was just cobbled together to give him his due as emperor. When I say that, it, it made no sense. Previously under Charlemagne, they had all been Franks, but the fact was, without his great personality, that which was cobbled together to give Lothar Francia Media, Middle Francia, it didn't make any kind of sense. You had you had chunks of population that, and languages and culture that, that didn't that, that that really. And again, when the house lights went up on the stage, it's like people salt. Who are you? What languages that you speak? It wasn't. It didn't. It, they had no reason to be together. You know, it hadn't happened organically. It was just people, like always in imperial days, people drawing lines on maps. It was done then, it was done again. The British Empire did it all over the place, you know, all over the Middle East, drawing lines. Just, It's amazing how those characters, kings and emperors, they just parceled up and divvied up land without the merest thought about the people actually living there. You know, they're just drawing lines arbitrarily because they've got three boys and they, in this instance and they want to split But it happens again and again and again. You know, you don't have states in those days. You've got estates. It's land holdings by the greediest, most acquisitive, powerful people on the planet at that given moment. And that's all that happens. So Lothar, the elder boy, you know, pat him on the head, emperor, gets this territory from the, from the low countries in the north all the way down to Rome in, in, in Italy in the south. So it doesn't have so the, it doesn't have any unity really then because they're no, all no there's no it's like there's, there's no there's, it's not a country you can't you can't just you can't just draw a line around a loop well it's the, the lesson never gets learned it keeps happening but you can't draw a line around a, a territory or a map and say right that's a country now because the people have to have some kind of they have their own allegiances and they have blood ties and and cultural ties and linguistic ties. And you can't you can't just manufacture that to suit the eldest boy in a family, so that so that's Lothar. He gets his third, the a big chunk. Louis the German he gets what they called Francia Orientalis, Eastern Francia. That was everything of Charlemagne's east of the Rhine, and it took in places, uh, uh, little little uh, pockets of land with with names that are long gone, Austrasia, Alamannia, uh, Bavaria, Saxony, Thuringia. You know, so they, they were all these were getting these were bundled together to give him Eastern Francia. So he's got his patch. Charles, who, who later answers to the to the wonderful name of Charles the Bald, he gets Francia Occidentalis. Oriental is 
Orient is east, Occident is west. It's where the sun rises and where the sun sets, actually. So Charles the Bald gets Francia Occidentalis, Western Francia, and that takes in, amongst others, Aquitaine, Gascony, Septimania. Again, you know, a name of a place, a name of a territory that's long since gone. Where is that? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that, Paul. It's all, it's all what we're what we're dealing with here. Why this is the moment? Why this is another moment in the history of the world? And it's a truly, it's a truly significant moment. I mean, they're all significant moments, but why this one really matters is that the Treaty of Verdun in 843 AD laid down, set the destiny of modern Europe right there in that moment. Because when you say where is Septimania, Septimania is in what we would call France. Francia Occidentalis, Western Francia, becomes France. It's not the perfect shape yet, but the intent is there. Francia Orientalis, that's Germany. In all but name, that's Germany. Now, so that, that's in that moment, those two entities that will matter hugely in the story of the world and that will be at each other's throats again and again and again, they just crystallise into, you know, it's like a, it's like a, you know, ice forming and, and, and fractures through it. it. It freezes in that moment into those parts. Poor old Lothar's territory, middle Francia, because it doesn't matter, well, it, does, it matters, but because it doesn't have an identity and there's nothing to hold it together, it's always under stress from the presence of East and West Francia because in their own way those two parcels of land do make sense and they each pull they pull at Middle Francia that's in between them and well I mean basically what happens after Lothar dies the territory that he left behind that Middle Francia became known as Lotharingia and it was ruled over his son by this of the same name another Lothar but eventually it, it goes out, the, the name falls away with everything else. Well, there's an echo of it, Lorraine. You'll have heard of Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, Lorraine was an extraordinarily important territory in its own right. It was a duchy eventually, and it mattered because precisely where it sat meant that it was at the crossroads of the four nations. So it was always it was always mattered, and the, the people of or the rulers of Lorraine were always able to act as sort of influential figures, kingmakers. They always had a big say in, in politics. So it goes from Middle Francia becomes Lotharingia, and then that name. Even after the most of the territory gets sucked away, you know, France claims the western part, Germany claims the eastern part, but Lorraine lingers like I don't know, like the smile on the Chesh face of the Cheshire cat or something. It lasts longest, and the name becomes Lorraine. You know, lo you know, long after the rest of it is away. So, that's incredible. You know, it's, this is how long it takes in the terms of the story of the world and the love letter to the world. You know, when you go all the way back to the beginning where we started in Mesopotamia with Enheduanna, the first named poet, it's taken this long till 843 AD to get to the point where there's a sort of a France and a sort of a Germany. You know, that's how long that's taken. I suppose as well as acknowledging that, it's always important to remember, because it happens again and again and again, and under Charlemagne, Big Charlie, he had had the power and the personality and the intent and the gravitas or whatever to hold it together. And it all made sense and it was all Franks together. But at the same time, it was an illusion. In the same way that all countries are, 
all empire. It's an illusion. They last as long as the majority of the people un- under its umbrella consider themselves to be part of it. And at the very moment when too many of them don't believe the the trick, you know, the, the light's gone, the bubble bursts, the magic's gone, then there is no such place. And then it, it's like bits of plasticine, they get moulded, they get pushed together in other shapes. And that's what happened. So Charlemagne's empire only ever worked when he was there. And without him, it broke up into the disparate elements that, in reality, it had always been. And it also brought out the worst in people, because his descendants, they they were, as, the, as you all see it, you know, the sons of great people or the daughters of great people. They often have a tendency to think that they're entitled to all the same rights and privileges as, as the mum and dad. But they haven't earned it. They've just been handed it on a plate. Charlemagne fought for decades to put the thing together. They just get handed bits of it. And because of the the inadequacies of their characters, they were more interested in the finery and the riches and the titles than they were in the people and the place. It's just that classic story. And so whatever the empire had been under Charlemagne, it was gone in the moment that he was gone. And now you've got Western Francia and you've got Eastern Francia and you've got this dissolving, diminishing Middle Francia in between them. And people forget the next generation or two generations down, it doesn't take any longer than that, they forget all of the effort that it took to put the entity together. And so they don't continue to put in the work to keep it together. And and in that forgetting, they become strangers to one another. Instead of being all Franks together, you've got the beginning of now it's the French, now it's the Germans, now it's fracturing into all of these smaller pieces. And that brings with it, you know, everything that then happens. And finally, it's just worth casting a mind back to, to Charlemagne. He remembered or he understood what Rome had been, the Roman Empire. And it was in many ways it was that which he had sought to recreate by you know by, by pulling everything together in his own name. But for all that he remained or he retained some kind of self awareness and some kind of humility in the face of it all. You know, right into towards the end of his life he was still practicing how to write. He he understood the, the power and the value of literacy and he struggled to the end of his days to to master that. But his sons were more interested in just enjoying the wealth and enjoying the titles. But unlike their father, who for all of his days, for all that he had, for all that he achieved, he understood what he himself was when it got right down to who he was when he was on his own in his bedchamber. And for all of his days, it was known and noticed about Charlemagne that for his garb, for his clothes, all he ever wore was the plain blue cloak of a Frankish man. He remembered who he was. And he was connected to the people a bit more. He was. I mean, he wasn't. He was. He was no benign ruler. You wouldn't be able to say he was a. He was a. He was an emperor. He was. A, he was a power-hungry man. But yes, it was his idea. It made sense in his head. And while he was alive, the empire made sense. And after he was gone, it fractured, and it was never the same again. The great heathen army from Scandinavia lands and sweeps across the long island of Britain 
Anglo-Saxon kingdoms topple like tenpins. In their way stands a resolute leader of great learning. Battered and bruised in battle, he hides out, honing his warrior skills with sustained guerrilla warfare, finally meeting the Viking marauders head-on at the Battle of Eddington. The fight back has begun. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, my YouTube channel simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Allthorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.